0: All right, we've got a couple of announcements. Am I on? Okay. We've got a couple of announcements uh, to go over and um, remind people of while everybody's getting in here or getting settled. Uh, First of all, men's prayer breakfast is this Saturday morning at 7.30, and that goes from 7.30 to about 9, and then we'll have our deacons meeting after that. Also, there's a still, still a few Christmas decorations that we have put out um, from past years to give away if you're interested. They're in the back room across from the church office. Also, uh, if you didn't get the announcement, David Dunn uh, went home last Thursday. He, just before Thanksgiving, he had a heart transplant. Yesterday, I texted him, and I said, well, now that you have a new heart, do you have to invite Jesus into it? Also, the Myers are now, they finished up their ministry in uh, Brazil, and he is headed to Antarctica. He said he was doing better, as he was doing better as long as he doesn't move too quick or in the wrong direction, he's got a brace, and... Um, but things are improving there. So they'll be back. I think they get back a couple of days before Christmas. And then some uh, just a praise item to uh, remember that we have I was contacted or put in contact with a pastor in Kenya who's been uh, listening online and he, um, uh, he, has, he has seen to it that the promise book would be, was translated into Swahili. And so now that they've been given all the instructions for setting it up and how to take it to the printer, so we're waiting on what the estimates will be on printing there. And another thousand are being printed in Armenia. And, I mean, it just continues. And as long as the Lord provides the resources, then we're able to continue to have these books printed. And you saw the letter. You should have seen the prayer letter that has gone out uh, that went out today from eager Small Yard. There's a little bit more to what's going on there in Ukraine. One of the things to pray about, again, is have the printing of the books. The man who had the printing business that was printing um, several thousand of the promised books for them to use got drafted into the army. And it's not like where you get drafted this month and you can show up in two or three months. It's like you get drafted today and you show up tomorrow. And uh uh so that's that's going on. So we just need to pray uh that we can continue to uh get these books booklets printed, that there's uh, distribution networks. Um, Eager is concerned that he might be called up, but as long as he's working in a civilian capacity for a military support organization, then he'll be uh he won't be called up. Eager's probably about forty three or forty four, so he's in that Older age, target target age range for, for getting drafted into the Ukrainian army. So let's continue to pray for them and uh, pray for the health of these others and some of the other requests. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer so we can make sure we're in right relationship with the Lord. If necessary, uh, in silent prayer, confessing uh, sin to the Lord so that we can be restored to our walk with the Lord and in fellowship, and so we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, what a privilege it is that we have in this church age to come before your throne of grace, that Jesus Christ, our high priest, opened the door, that we have access each individually because of our priesthood, individual priesthood in the body of Christ. Father, we're thankful that we have such a great salvation and that you have provided so much for us in this church age. And, Father, we get so many opportunities to apply what we study because the world around us just seems to uh, be spiraling out of control. So we continue to pray for us that we may be steadfast, faithful to your word, uh, learning your word, memorizing your word, internalizing your word, and applying your word, and that we may shine as lights in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation and that tonight we will um, uh, be able to concentrate on some important teaching that we may understand what has transpired as part of your work in saving us. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 12 to begin with. We are studying now in in the life of Abram, Le- Abram later named Abraham. And so this is important. The last lesson, which was lesson nine, talked about the Abrahamic covenant, that God entered into a covenant with Abraham due to the failure of the human race in their continuous rebellion, even after the flood, uh, when God had reduced the human race to eight members due to the incredibly Terrible and wicked sinfulness prior to the flood. It was so bad God hit the restart button and we can't imagine the wickedness that was going on at that time. So God f- flooded the earth to destroy all breathing creatures except for those that were on the ark. So everything started over with eight and by the time we get A couple of hundred years down the road, there's another rebellion against God at the Tower of Babel. So they wanted to make their name great. They wanted to be famous. They wanted to have victory over God. They were building a tower to the heavens. And uh, according to Josephus, part of their rationale was that if God flooded the earth again, which he promised not to, that they would be able to Go to the top of the tower. Man is always seeking his own way of deliverance, apart from God. And so God, as we saw last time, uh, in the previous lesson, God calls out Abram. So we have been looking at these initial events, and we're going tonight. We're going to forego uh, standing up, doing the all the motions. I think we're getting this down for now. We'll get back to it in terms of review. We've gone through the creation. Then the fall of man, uh, during which time man becomes spiritually dead, separated from God, and his heart is, de- is inclined to rebellion. Then God, uh, it continues so bad that God says that the imagination of man's heart was wicked continuously, and so he uh, destroyed the earth that then was by a flood. We had the failure at the Tower of Babel, and now we're at the call of Abram. So we're introduced to Abram briefly in a genealogy at the end of chapter 11. And the genealogy of his father, uh, Terah. Terah begot Abram, Nahor, and Haran. These are his, uh, brothers. And then it goes on to describe the fact that, um, Abram is living in in Ur of the Chaldees. And then chapter 12 just begins with the Lord calling Abram and giving him a command. And this is the promise that God makes. He says, get out of your country, from your family, from your father's house, to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. And make your name great, in contrast to those at the Tower of Babel who are going to make their own name great. God is telling Abram he'll make his name great. And you shall be a blessing. That's a command. That is not a description. It is a command to be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. This is very important because that applies to every human being. It doesn't matter what nationality there are they are, what ethnicity they are, what country they're from, what their religious or philosophical orientation is. If they bless Israel and the Jewish people, they will be blessed. And if they treat them lightly, although the English uses the same word twice, it's two different words in the Hebrew. If the first word means to um, curse or judge harshly, And the second one means to treat someone with disrespect. We certainly see an incredible level of disrespect displayed by Hamas and Muslims against Israel. God says, "...I will harshly judge those who treat you with disrespect." And then he promised in you all of the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now I wanted to review that because that's a promise that God made to Abraham. And so now we move from the call of Abraham to, and I thought I had changed the title on that slide, to the justification of Abraham. Abraham, This is a very important topic, so we're going to go from twelve one, skip over through chapter 13 and 14. To chapter fifteen. And this is where we're going to talk about this extremely important issue of the justification of of Abraham. And so something doesn't look right on that slide. I thought I had changed that. Oh, yeah. Uh, So previously we looked at how God how Abraham responded to God's call, and now we're looking at this issue of faith how were people justified before the cross? Have you thought about that? Maybe you just said, how are people saved before the cross? But I'm making a point because the word saved is used a lot of different ways other than as a synonym for justification. Justification is what happens when we trust in God's promise of salvation in the church age that is focused on the person and the work of jesus christ on the cross that john says at the end of his gospel uh that jesus did many more signs but these are written that you might believe that jesus is the messiah the son of god and that by believing you may have life in his name Okay, so the focus point is that you'll have life in his name. Name refers to all that a person is, that in, that's their reputation, it's their character, it is who they are, their essence. And so that means that part of what we have to understand at a basic, basic level is that Jesus is God and he can do what he can do because he is God, but he's also fully man. And that he can die, because he's fully man, he, he will die on the cross in our place. That's his role as the, as the anointed one, the Messiah. But how were people saved before the cross? Did they know the name of Jesus? No, they didn't. Did they know the, about the cross? Well, maybe late, much later, there were some prophecies that hinted at that. But it certainly wasn't there in the first uh, several thousand years, two or three thousand years. So uh, we ask this question, how are people justified before the cross? The second question is, how would Abraham know about God's promise of salvation? Did you read about that in chapter 12 or 13 or 14? No. How, How does Abraham know? It's not even mentioned there, is it? And then we have the third question that we're going to address is on what basis was Abraham uh, justified? And so this gets us into a very important topic. Now, when we look at Genesis 15, and I don't have the the slide of this at the beginning here, uh, we read that after these things, after... Uh, the delivery of Lot and his family and rescuing them from the kings from the east. Uh, The word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. So notice that in 15.1, God speaks in a vision, but not in chapter 12, verse 1. It just says the Lord had said to Abram. So we don't know exactly how that communication took place. But here it's, it's in a vision. And God says, I'm your shield, your exceedingly great reward. But Abram says, remember, God had promised him a descendant. Abram said, Lord God, what will you give me, seeing I go childless? In other words, God, you didn't fulfill that promise. Let me help you. He says, "In the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And then Abram said further, he said, look, you have given me no offspring. Indeed, one born in my house is my heir. So according to law, Eliezer was born in his house. He could adopt him. But the word of the Lord came to him in verse 4 saying, this one shall not be your heir, but one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. So he's, he's specifying further this promise of descendants, that it's one from your own body. Then he, that is God, brought Abram outside and said, look at the stars, count the stars. Are you able to number them? The point is you can't count the stars, but you're going to have more descendants than there are stars. And then verse six says, and he believed in the Lord and he accounted it to him for righteousness. Now, if you just read that in the English, It sounds that what Abram is believing is this promise that God just made about the number of descendants that he will have coming from his own body. But if you think that, you're misled by poor English translations. It's difficult to accurately translate it because of the uh, certain things going on in the Hebrew grammar. And this is a problem. Also, you have a problem with you have a problem uh, with the word accounted. What does that mean? It's the first time that word is used so far in the Bible, and it's also translated as imputed or credited it to him for righteousness. First time the word righteousness appears in the Old Testament. It's also the first time the word believed appears in the Old Testament. So how are people saved in the Old Testament? I see eyebrows growing together out there. This is a very important question, and it's confusing to people. Now, I'm not saying this in any kind of a negative criticism at all, because because as I was doing a lot of study the last 48 hours on this, I discovered that some of my highly revered professors who... At one point in, an, in a chapter would properly define justification by faith alone as God imputing righteousness to us. But then they would slip because a lot of translations do this, and they translate the, the word for the verb for to make to uh, declare righteous, a judicial term. they translate it as make righteous." And a little phrase that you should remember is that God imputes righteousness to us. He does not impart righteousness to us. He declares us to be righteous, which is the classic doctrine of justification by faith. He does not make us righteous. The idea of imparting righteousness and making righteousness is at the root of a Roman Catholic heresy that God changes us ethically and morally when we are saved. We are made righteous. No we're not. We still have the same stinking rotten sin nature that is just as capable of sinning in every way it could before we were saved. We are not made righteous. There's a judicial decision. These are words taken right out of the courtroom and that they are That means that God declares us to be righteous because he has credited to our account the righteousness of Christ. So as we get into this particular lesson, lesson number 10, uh, as I was working through this, I noticed that there were some inconsistencies in a number of places and some things that probably needed more clarification. So at 2 o'clock in the morning, uh, yesterday morning, I woke up and I thought through some things and went down, and spent an hour and a half and wrote out eight pages. I sent it to Charlie to see if, make sure that that I was on target. Because see this, just to remind you, this interlock program is written by Amos and Jen Kwok, who've done an incredible job with this, and they based this on what Charlie taught in the framework series. Because they needed to teach and train their teenagers, early teenagers, so they could face and handle the crises, the idiocy that's going on in the world today. And they did an incredible job doing it. This is a difficult topic. I know really good, smart theologians who, when they wrote, they didn't write consistently, okay? Okay. So there's some issues there. So I wanted to make sure Charlie had it because I didn't want to step on Charlie's toes, and um, and then I, s- I sent that same information to uh, the Quacks because I had already made some some comments about this. And so this morning I had a two hour, almost a two hour Zoom meeting with them, working through a lot of things because it, it's just difficult to to just go and rewrite a lesson. Uh, and to fix things like this. So this will be corrected. So I'm saying that because um, I, I'm not sure. I think, did you take the lesson down off the website for tonight? So I, I'm addressing this tonight at a higher level than I would if we were just teaching parents to teach the kids. But parents and teachers need to really understand what the Bible teaches about justification by faith alone, what it is and what it isn't. And what's going on in the Old Testament? Because you're going to be asked if you're a Sunday school teacher or a parent. Sooner or later, kids are going to say, well, how did they get saved before Jesus? Well, how did they get saved before Jesus? Was it by being good? Some people think it was by the law. In fact, Schofield in his uh, reference Bible, the notes in Exodus, indicate that he thought that they got saved by obeying the law. He was wrong. That's not true. They were not saved by the law. They were saved like Abraham right here. So let's go through a few points by way of introduction. First of all, there are challenges for us in teaching this lesson because of the chronology involved. What I mean by that is when you start in chapter 12, God just out of nowhere calls Abram. We're not told anything about when Abram was saved. We're not told anything about the circumstances. We're not told anything about uh, what he actually believed. He's not believing in the Messiah. That word has not been introduced yet. He's not believing in the, about the death on the cross. That hasn't been introduced yet. He has almost no information. Okay? So... We just have to understand that that begins with the call. And now in this parenthetical verse of verse 6 of chapter 15, uh, we're told, and this is the correct translation, I'll get into the details of this later, and I would translate it, he had already, prior to the statements, the promise of God in chapter 15. 15, 1 through 5, he had already believed. This is parenthetical. The writer is saying, remember, Abram had already believed in God and it was imputed to him as righteousness. So he's already a believer. He's already justified. But this is a foundational verse. Paul quotes it at least twice in the New Testament, Romans 4 and Galatians 3, to be the foundation for our understanding of justification uh, by faith. So Abram was a believer before Genesis 12.1. So what we have is 12, 13, and 14 in chronological order. We get to 15.6, and it's talking about something that occurred way before Genesis 12.1. But it's not clear the way we read it in the English. Uh, but Abram has already been saved maybe for 20 to 30 years. Second point is that God revealed his plan of salvation in the Scripture progressively. Okay, Adam lived to be 930 years old. When he was, right before he died, he knew more about it than before he was, than when he got kicked out of the garden. Okay, but Noah knew more about it than he did. Abraham knows more about it than Noah did. Moses knows more about it than Abraham did. David knew more about it than Moses did. See, God doesn't just pull up with a huge dump truck of instruction and dump it all on Adam in Genesis 3. It's progressive. That's what we mean. It doesn't change anything, but there's more and more information given um, so that by the time you get to the end of the Old Testament, you learn more. So the people, uh, and also I believe that the people at that time were um, told more. It's not that they were not told more. How do I know that? Because there's a number of statements in the New Testament, uh, and we'll look at some of them in Hebrews 11, for example, of things that, that Abraham believed. It's not even mentioned in the beginning of Genesis, so God obviously revealed a lot of things to them that are not recorded in the book of Genesis. Okay, and that's a big part of understanding and working our way through what's going on here. In Hebrews 11:8, we read, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place where he would receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. Now, we saw that in Genesis 12. That's clear. By faith he dwelt in the land of promise, as in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. So we learn that from Genesis. But in Hebrews 11:10 it says, For he waited for this city, which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Where's that in Genesis? It's not there. So it's real clear that God is giving them information. There's revelation available to them that we're not told about in, in, um, in Genesis. So when we ask that question about where did he learn about this, well, God must have told him about it, but we weren't told that God told him this information. So my point is there's information about how to be justified that's not revealed in the early part of Genesis. But that doesn't mean they didn't know it. And we're going to see that in just a minute. Second, the use of the word believe is not used until we arrive at Genesis fifteen six. But does that mean that, they, that all of the people, Adam, Seth, Enoch, Methuselah, Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, that they didn't know that they were to believe the saving promise of God? No, it's just the first time this word is used. We Think about it. From Genesis one to eleven, we cover somewhere around seventeen or eighteen hundred years of history. It's twenty one. It, we're in the twentieth, twenty first century. Okay, seventeen hundred years ago was around three hundred. How much has happened? How many books are written on all the things that happened in the last seventeen hundred years? God covers seventeen hundred years of history. Uh, genealogically in chapter 5, a little bit at the end of 4, chapter 5, and then there's the flood. We're not told anything. A lot happened. But God doesn't see that that's important. It's not central to his message or what he thinks we should know. Hebrews 11 and other passages in the New Testament clearly indicate faith on the part of the patriarchs. But this is not mentioned as such except for Abraham. Other words like trust and faith are not used either until much later than Abraham. In 2015 at the Chafer Conference, Jim Myers delivered a presentation on how were people saved in the Old Testament that you can download that off of the Dean Bible Ministries website. And in that he says... Accurately, remarkable as it may seem, there is no explicit gospel message to be found in the Old Testament. There's no specific command to believe in a future Messiah for salvation, nor is there any mention of an Old Testament saint who put faith in a promised Savior for salvation. There are no clear salvation verses like John 3.16 or Acts 16.31 to be found in the Old Testament. How were they saved? Well, it's there. So in Genesis 15, 6, we read, And he, Abram, believed in the Lord, and he accounted it to him for righteousness. But we need to ask questions of what we read in the Bible. Don't just sit there and read it with your mind, thinking about what you're going to do tomorrow morning or yesterday or something like which is what a lot of us do at one point or another we don't concentrate real real well so the first question is how did abraham come to know what he believed how did he learn it he doesn't have a bible you know he can't go down to the baptist bookstore and buy him a new bible he can't download it off of logos how does he know this information and sub questions of that is how did he learn about yahweh He grows up, Scripture says, in a pagan environment where his family are moon worshippers In Ur, each town had their own uh, deity in the pantheon, and so the chief deity in Ur was the moon god. So how did he learn about Yahweh? We don't know. When did he learn about Yahweh? When he was a kid, when he was a teenager, when he was 20 or 30? We don't know. See, we can ask a lot of questions of Scripture and God says, it's not important. That's why I haven't told you. What I've told you is what's important. What was the nature and content of what he believed? You know, we, we have several, a number of promises and verses related to salvation and the work of Christ in the New Testament. He didn't have any of that. So what exactly did he believe? Second, when did he learn about Yahweh and how to be justified? That was, that was the second question up above. When did he learn about Yahweh? Well, we can develop some from that. Did he learn about Yahweh when God clarified the promise in Genesis 15, 4 through 5, the immediate context? That's what a lot of people think is that when he says he believed the Lord, he's believing what he said in the two verses just prior. Is that when he... Learned about Yahweh and how to be justified? Nothing there relates to justification. When God called Abram in Genesis 122 to 3, is that when he learned about him? When God says, I'm going to give you a land and I'm going to make your descendants as numerous as the stars, I'll make you a great nation, I'll bless you, make your name great, you shall be a blessing, I'll bless those who bless you. Is that when he learned about Yahweh? Some people think that's the promise he's talking about. Or was it earlier? I believe it had to have been earlier because there's nothing as we will see in, Gen- in the promises of Genesis 12:1 through 3 that conform to clear salva- salvation content versus anywhere else in the Bible. Third, what was the content he believed? Okay, that's the third question in the f- sub-question in the first question. The promise given in 15, that's not 3, that's 15, 4 through 5, not 34 through 5. The promise given there or the, I was heavy heavy fingered on that, I guess. The promise in the covenant of 12, 2 through 3 or the promise going back to Genesis 3:15. That's it. You got to go back to Genesis 3 because there's nothing else between Genesis 3 and 4 to Genesis 12 that says anything related to how to be saved. So our third introduction is that the purpose of Genesis is not to answer our questions on how people were saved, when or what revelation they had. That's all developed later. We inferred that from many passages later on and in the New Testament. The focus here uh, is on the unfolding of God's plan of grace. Moses is writing. He's writing to three million Jews that are on the plains of Moab who are told to go into the land of Canaan and annihilate every Canaanite. And they're saying, why us? So Genesis 1 through 11 is to say, this is why us. All the nations, all the peoples were in rebellion against God and sinning exceedingly, and God got fed up with them, and he's going to go to plan what appears to us to be plan B, and he's going to work through the descendants of one individual. So any other information is unrelated to the purpose of what he's writing. Fourth point, as such, the first mention of justification salvation is in Genesis 15:6, which is roughly 2100 B.C., which is at least 3,000 years after the fall of man. So the assumption is that he's reminding his, Moses is writing to an audience that is informed. And he's just reminding his initial audience, those Jews on the plains of Moab, right before they go into the conquest of. of Abraham remember Abraham had already believed long before this they would have known that fifth we know from later revelation in the new testament that man can only have his problem of spiritual death unrighteousness and the sin penalty solved by Jesus Christ on the cross it's exclusive so what, how about salvation in the Old Testament? Well, let's look at what the New Testament says first. To understand some of the things that are not revealed in early Genesis, we must rely on later revelation in either the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament, or in the New Testament. So in Hebrews 10.4, the writer of Hebrews says, For it is not possible, or we could just put it is impossible, that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. So sacrifices could not take away sins. Animal sacrifices could not take away sins. So how were people saved prior to the cross? In Abram's case, he does not know words like Jesus or the Messiah or the cross. How are they justified? Hebrews 9.22 tells us in a statement of a universal principle, According to the law, almost all things are purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. In other words, there, in the Old Testament, this issue of a death as a substitute for a death is what is displayed and pictured in sacrifices. And the shedding of blood is central to the forgiveness or remission of sin. When do we have the first sacrifice? Genesis chapter three, right after the sin, and it starts there. It's right after the promise. So that's what we're gonna. That's what we're gonna look at. And um, so, what I'm gonna argue is that Abram knew this. It had been passed down orally. Somebody told him, and it was uh, because the people were not ignorant. How do we know that there there was at least one other believer on the planet and probably thousands more? Who else do we know was a believer on the planet? Melchizedek. He's a Gentile. He's a Gentile priest king of Salem, Jerusalem. So we know there's other believers. So Abram probably heard from somebody, some believer who was worshiping Yahweh and not the pagan gods. So let's look at some key principles to review the biblical teaching on salvation, because what the Bible says elsewhere is consistent from Genesis to Revelation. So we have to use that to understand what it was that Abram believed. First of all, the character of God doesn't change. The character of God is immutable; it never changes. God is, was, and always will be perfect righteousness and perfect justice. First John 1:5 said that God is light, where we, on the other hand, are born in darkness under the authority of darkness. Colossians 1:13. And God can have nothing to do with sin. Due to his character, God, um, uh, God cannot have a relationship with his unrighteous creatures. Sin is an offense to God's righteousness and justice. In Isaiah 59, 2, we read, But your iniquities have separated you from your God. That is spiritual death, separation from God. 1 John 1, 5, this is the message that we have heard from him and declare to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. God is perfect, perfect righteousness. He is without sin. Romans 3, 23 says about us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Glory of God was an idiom for all that God is. What what makes him important is who he is, his essence. It's, It's a similar idea that's in the name of God. We fall short of the glory of God, the importance of God, the centrality of God. 1 John 1.6 says if we say that we have fellowship with Him and walk in darkness, then we lie and we don't practice the truth. It's an either-or proposition. We're either walking in the light or walking in darkness. So as we review what we've learned in the previous nine lessons... How did God reveal or indicate that he would solve the sin problem? The problem of spiritual death, the problem of separation of God. So we've seen this already. So we have to go back. And that's the second point. Uh, Man on his own cannot save himself. Uh, From eternity past, God knew that he would send his son into the world to pay the penalty for sins. God postponed judgments according to Romans 3:25 and 26. God postponed or delayed judgment on man's sin in order to prepare the world for the coming of the savior. Romans 3:25 says that in his forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed, that is previous to the cross. He's not permitting them in the sense of permissiveness and winking at them and say, that's okay, it's not bad. It's that he has delayed judgment until the cross for Christ to take on that payment Uh, for the purpose of demonstrating at the present time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So justifying is what we talk about, justification. It's the imputation of righteousness and declaration of, of just, that he's just. It's the declaration, I mean, it's a judicial declaration. Third, we need to be reminded the legal penalty of sin is death, not physical death. The instant that Eve and then Adam ate from the forbidden fruit they died spiritually well how do we know that first of all the warning the promise in genesis 2:17 of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die it's an emphatic statement it's going to be instantaneous now this is evidenced by what happened next First of all, they recognized that they had a problem. They were naked. They were running around unclothed as God created them up until this moment and never crossed their mind. Now there's a self-consciousness. There's an exposure that's here. They're vulnerable. And they know that this is a serious problem, and so they have to cover it up. Now, that's really interesting to delve into the thought process here. All of a sudden, they realize they're naked. we got to cover up. You think God's not going to notice? But they don't think about that. So they made coverings. They took fig leaves. How long did it take him to do that? So they make a, and the word there for the covering is more like a girdle or a loincloth. It's a partial covering. It's not like what the word God's going to use later on. Second thing that happens is when God came into the garden, as he did every day, and instead of being welcomed with open arms by the couple, they ran and hid. So that's another indication. Something serious has happened. Number one, they're embarrassed by their nakedness, and number two, and they try to cover it up. And number two is that they run and hide from God. And God asks, why? What's happened? Why are you where you are? And they said they were afraid because they were naked. So they know that something significant has happened. So they've died spiritually. They're separated from God. Now, when we go to Romans, in Romans 5, 12, Paul writes, Therefore, just as through one man, sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men, and thus uh, because all sinned, okay? So that's the point that all sinned because Adam sinned. they're spiritually dead. That's our problem. That's why we can't have a relationship with God because we're spiritually dead. Now, believing God's promise that he's going to, by Abraham that God's going to give, give him land and descendants and make him and uh, worldwide blessing doesn't solve the sin problem. So that can't be the salvific promise, although I will tell you that there are people who think that. In fact, I learned today that a very well-known evangelical seminary, which I've had a close relationship with in the past, has that in their doctrinal statement, that there's a shift in the gospel content here. That's absurd. They can't figure this out. This should be theology 101. So sin spreads to all men. And verse 14, nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses. Abram's in the middle. Even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam. So what did God propose as a solution? That's our fourth point. In Genesis 3:14 to 19, God announced the consequences of spiritual death. The penalty the legal penalty for sin was spiritual death. Genesis 3:14 to 19 is not telling you what the legal penalty is. It's telling you what the results of that legal penalty are, of God of uh, man being separated. It, it, the whole creation groans, Paul says in Romans eight. Under the curse of sin. So it didn't just affect man's relationship to God. It affected every molecule, every atom that God had created. But God says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed or your descendant or you and her seed. Now that's, you know, we've talked about this before. Women have an egg. Men have a seed. But this is a strange thing. It's to get our attention. It's foreshadowing the virgin birth. It's not overtly clear, but that's what's implied there. Uh, when the, we get to Isaiah 7, 14, you don't need a man. God says the virgin will conceive, virgin conception and birth. Okay, and he says, and he shall bruise your head. That is, the seed of the woman will bruise the head of the serpent and the serpent will bruise his heel. It's a fatal wound, but he comes back from it. They're both fatal wounds. Okay, this is the called the Proto-Evangelium, the very first it, it, hint of the gospel that God is going to provide the solution and he's going to provide the seed of the woman who will destroy the works of the serpent. Now, they don't know much more than that. But God provides a little more information because he's going to solve their sin problem with something better than than fig leaves. Now, there's something that that I realized yesterday is going on here. We'll get to that. But remember that God is going to put new clothes on them. That's an important picture in Scripture. It's a temporary solution. It is one that depicts something about how God's eventually going to solve the sin problem. The the clothing of them is a picture of the imputation of righteousness and the declaration of justification. But it's not real clear. But in light of subsequent scripture, it's clear. So in Genesis 321, also for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. Now, I know one or two of you have gone hunting before. Now, if you hunt a deer and you shoot a deer, then it's a mess. You've got to eviscerate the deer. You've got to gut the deer. You've got to, and that's going to get your hands messy and you're going to have blood up to your shoulders and there's blood everywhere and you have to get all of that out to preserve the meat. Now, what God is doing here is he's going to clothe them with skin, with leather. Where do you get the leather? You don't just make leather. Now, I imagine a lot of young people think that's what happens. You just Somebody just makes leather. In some places, you have you know, artificial man-made, man-made leather. It's sort of like that man-made meat you can go and buy at the grocery store. You know, they have no idea it comes off of a real cow. You just go pick it up at the store. But but God has to think about what's going on in the text here. God has to kill an animal. Nothing has ever died before. Nothing. Remember, death came by sin. So nothing has ever died before. He kills the animal. He has to show them how to do it. In the Jewish tradition, there is a right way to sacrifice, to kill the sacrificial animals that's quick and painless. So God would have taught them that. God would have had to give them an anatomy lesson so that they could understand what they're doing when they would sacrifice an animal. So he's going to teach them that. He's going to teach them how to properly skin the animal and then he has to teach them how to wash and clean the hide, how to prepare the hide with what they have available so that the, the hide does not stiffen up and get hard. You know, a lot of people, you skin something, you leave it there for two or three days, it's really hard and it's going to crack and break and you, you can't wear it. So he's got to teach them the right way to treat the animal hide so that they can make clothing out of it. What else do you think God's telling them? You know, this would have taken several hours. God's probably giving them lots of information about sacrifice. Now, how do we know that? That's an important question. How do we know that God did this? Well, when we get to the next chapter, Abel understands sacrifice he got that information from his mom and dad who got it from god that's the only place it could come from abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock. how did he know it should be the firstborn that's not even mentioned in genesis 3 or anything else it's mentioned how did he know that obviously god told adam and eve and they told him this is the way god tells you how to approach him you don't get to do it on your own terms that's what cain did and the Lord respected Abel and his offering. So he brings the firstborn of his flock and of their fat. Why is that important? Some of you remember Jay Collins. Jay Collins went to be with the Lord a couple of years ago, or maybe it was just a year and a half ago. Time flies. And um, Jay was a veterinarian. Jay was brilliant many, many ways. And one time we went out to men's camp out and we bought a goat. And we killed the goat, and Jay taught us how to skin the goat. I mean, men ought to know how to skin an animal and how to, how to butcher an animal. That's what, what men do. They provide for the family. And um, so we were teaching them all about, all about that, and that was, that was uh, very interesting to do that. And I asked them the question, I said, what's this big deal, that's, this emphasis in the Bible about fat? And there's fat around the kidneys, fat around different organs. And I've asked a lot of people that. The only solution I get is this. When, it's, when you're in a drought, when you're in a famine, there's not any fat in the animal. The fat of the animal shows that there's prosperity, that the animals are fat, and that God is blessed. So you're sacrificing this that God is blessed. Okay. The Lord respected Abel and his offering but he did not respect Cain and his offering and Cain was angry and his countenance fell he had a pity party and just had a hissy fit right there in front of God and everybody In Hebrews 11:4 we're told by faith Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain why because he brought a sacrifice that God wanted through which he obtained witness that he was righteous how many times have you read that phrase how many times did you realize that that meant he was justified that's what that means you have sacrificed a blood sacrifice and he is righteous justification right there so when we get to genesis 15:6 and we say what's the background on this for Abram is that there's a tradition handed down from generation to generation from believers that the sacrifice is a picture of God's, that God has made a promise that he is going to solve the sin problem. It's not very specific at this point. It's that God made this, this vague promise to Eve that her, one of her descendants is going to solve the sin problem and defeat Satan. And that this is pictured in the sacrifice in some way. And that when we trust God, God declares us righteous. That's what Hebrews eleven four is talking about. So six, Abel brought his sacrifice in faith, faith in God and the promise of God to defeat Satan. He brought the sacrifice that God prescribed, and uh, we have to recognize we can only approach God on God's terms. Seventh, after the worldwide flood, Noah also made sacrifices. Where did he get that information? It's got to have been handed down. But when God put him on the ark, he said, take seven of every clean animal, only a clean animal, could be used for a sacrifice. So you've got three pairs for procreation and one left over for sacrifice. Seven clean animals. How do you know which were clean and which were unclean? They're specified later on in the Mosaic Law, but that's not for another, oh, that's not for another two thousand years. How did he know what were clean and what weren't? It's not described in Genesis 1, 1 through 6 at all. There's no mention of that. So obviously God had, had told them at some point that what clean animals were and what unclean animals were, and this was part of their understanding on sacrifice. So God obviously revealed a lot more that's not to, that we're not told about, but they knew about. Eighth, we know from later revelation and mostly because of the explanation in the New Testament that these sacrifices pointed to Jesus as our substitute sacrifice. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For he, God the Father, made him, God the Son, who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Now, in a lot of the discussions I read, they they focus on this passage. They never go back to Abram. But this is righteous. We we have righteousness for the church-age believer. This imputed righteousness is in what we have as part of our possession of being in Christ. But in the Old Testament, they weren't in Christ. So you have to explain what's going on in the Old Testament. Ninth, the only way people can be justified, saved... Is through the death of Christ on the cross. This is again Romans three twenty-five through twenty-six. It's the only way. With apart from this uh, uh, shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins in Hebrews. Hebrews nine. So, it can't be a promise that God made that I'm going to give you a son through your own body. In Genesis fifteen three and four, or four and five rather. It can't be the promise in Genesis 12, 2 to 3. They don't involve sacrifice or the shedding of blood. So those can't be the promise that Abram had believed, and he believed it before this, even chapter 12. So point 10, as we continue through our study of the Old Testament, we will see that God progressively provided More and more information about sacrifices as well as prophecies and promises about the coming Savior. But at the time of Abram, it's minimal, but it's not as minimal as it probably was with with Noah. In Genesis chapter 6, we read, And Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. How did he find grace? Everywhere else in Scripture, you only get that kind of grace if you're justified. It doesn't say it, but it's implied because of what we know about God's how God works throughout the rest of Scripture. Now, there's another event in the later Old Testament that depicts this idea of justification. Remember this. In justification, God imputes. It's an accounting term. God imputes. It means it assigns a certain value to you. That doesn't mean you have it. It's like you had a negative balance in your bank account, and God says, "I'm going to cosign here, and my value is worth a hundred trillion dollars." So that that way everything's covered because I've assigned that value to you, but you don't have that in your account. When they when they Charge your account. It's gonna just it's gonna send a message to my account, but it's not in your account. I don't know. Not all illustrations work, but that's it's an accounting term. So it's something something like that. It's the imputation or crediting or accounting of value. It's not the imparting of value. That's the distinction I'm making. God doesn't put hundred trillion dollars into our account. But it's it's credited as if it were, so that our deficit is covered. So here's the illustration. Here we have the righteousness and justice of God. He can't have anything to do with a an unrighteous sinner. But God's going to solve the problem. Isaiah 64 6 says that all of us have become like one who is unclean And all our righteous deeds, not your unrighteous deeds, not your sins, all of your righteous deeds, all of your morality and ethics and religious activity. That's like a filthy rag. So at the cross, we have Christ who is perfectly righteous. Second Corinthians 521 says he made him who knew no sin. He's perfectly righteous to be sin on our behalf, what happens is our sin is imputed to Christ. And then his righteousness is imputed to us when we trust in him so that we are covered by his righteousness in that sense. God looks at us. And he sees the righteousness of Christ. But you all still have dirty, rotten, corrupt sin natures. He doesn't impart righteousness to you, and he doesn't make you righteous. He declares judicially that because you possess the righteousness of Christ, that you have righteousness. So that's what it is. And because we're declared righteous, Christ is, uh, God is free to bless us. There's another event in the Old Testament history that depicts this idea of justification. Okay, God is imputing something. So in Zechariah, Zechariah is one of the latter, pro- last prophets. He's one of the post-exilic prophets, Zechariah, Haggai, and Malachi. That means after they came back from the land. So these are the last three prophets before you go into the period of 400 years of silence between the Old Testament and... And New Testament. So Zechariah says, then he, that's this angel that is pointing things out to him. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of Yahweh. And Satan standing at his right hand to oppose him. So Satan's in heaven. And he's standing at the right hand of who? Of the angel of Yahweh. Because he's the prosecutor. He's saying, this is a dirty, rotten sinner. And and the Lord says to Satan, the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. So that shows two personages there. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand, referring to Joshua, a brand plucked from the fire? And then we're told, now Joshua... So see, that's the same kind of grammar you have in Genesis fifteen, six. It's a change of focus. Now, Joshua was clothed with filthy garments. The word translated filthy isn't the same word that you have with filthy, filthy clothes in um in Isaiah 64, 6. It's a different word. It means dung to put it politely. His clothes are covered in excrement. And he's standing before the angel of the Lord then he answered and sp- that is the angel of the lord answered and said to those before him take away the filthy garments from him and to him to joshua he said see i have removed your iniquity from you and i will clothe you with rich robes he do- it doesn't say that he is making him clean He's clothing him with rich robe. That's the the pictures of imputation of righteousness. They they cover him, but they haven't changed the fact that he's still a fallen sinner. Okay, so now we get to justification. All of that is just to go through the issues and lay the 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 background. Because, like I'm saying, I'm trying to teach the teachers on what they need to teach the kids in prep school. You're not going to teach them what I just taught you. You'll, you'll have to bring it down to, to their level. This is because this is complicated. But it, if you don't understand it, we well, used to have a saying in the homiletics, that's the preaching department in seminary, that if there's a fog in the pulpit... In other words, if the guy teaching isn't clear in his own head about what he's teaching, then there's going to be, I mean, if there's a mist in the pulpit, there's a fog in the pew. So teachers have to understand this so that they can then put it in their own words and bring it down to a level where a 10-year-old or a 12-year-old or a 15-year-old or a 20-year-old can understand. And I'm going to go into this in some more detail next time. because But I've, I've said it. Where did Abraham learn of this? He learned this because it's passed down orally. It may have been written down. We don't know. It may have been written down. There may have been some sort of pre-Noahic scripture that survived. We don't know. There's no reference to it. But there's some way that this information, going back to Genesis 3.15 and Genesis 4, that this information is communicated from generation to generation so that people who want to know God can do so and can be made right with God, declared righteous. So this is the background for understanding this. We'll get into some of the more details still next time. But the first point here that I'm suggesting for the curriculum, sort of reorganizing things, is this principle, justification. God declared Abraham righteous. And then next time we'll get into understanding what's going on in this particular verse just in terms of its context. Okay? Everybody clear? Anybody confused? Nobody wants to admit it now. All right, let's bow our heads. Father, thank you for this time that we could understand justification that we're all sinners. We're born spiritually dead. All of us have sinned and fallen short of your glory, but you have provided a perfect solution and that solution is through Christ's substitutionary payment on the cross for us that we might uh, have eternal life because of what he did for us and that because he was without sin then he's qualified to go to the cross and qualified to be our substitute and he is his righteousness because he is infinite in his deity his righteousness can be imputed to everyone who believes and that we have received that it's credited to our account. So our standing before you is one of being righteous because of who Jesus is and what he did for us and in the Old Testament they just anticipated that they didn't have the details that we have but they understood that there would be a solution you would provide it and on the basis of, of sacrifices, the way that you describe them, that they are made righteous, as it says about Abel in Hebrews 11.4. So, Father, we thank you that we can understand this and have an improvement in our clarity of what it means that we are justified by faith alone. In Christ alone. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.